Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. takes us down the path of University of Miami baseball. We are pleased to be joined by Gabby Sanchez. Gabby, thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me, man. I'm glad we got your Zoom set up. Your daughter had you look a little funky here at the beginning. Even though this will be an audio thing, he was in uh, some sort of cartoonish background with purple lips, so we had to call her in to make the change. We had a visit at the mound with the pitching coach. Yeah, they're doing a, uh, a show for Wizard of Oz, so it's the Wizard of Oz background. And for some reason, she knew how to put purple lips on me, and I had no clue how to take it off. And that's when you start to feel a little bit old, when things that your daughter does and you have no clue what it is. And then you start thinking about, man, this is how my dad felt when I was doing stuff. It's getting, it's getting weird now. 100%. Except when we were doing it, we were just running out of the house or not coming home. We weren't, we weren't messing around with the computer or anything <laughs> like true. that. We were getting in a different kind of trouble. All right, so let's get down to it. Usually on these things, Gabby, we like to tell everybody it's behind the you. So we go behind your story, your journey, and take everybody from kind of child up to the you and into, you know, your pro career. So you're a Miami guy through and through. You grew up in West Kendall, right? And you grew up going to UM games like you were a fan as a kid. You, you participated in the sort of in what the experience was at Mark like growing up. Yeah, of course. Went to definitely some games. You have to remember, too, that as a kid, just like you were saying, we were always playing, you know, so I was always in some kind of sport. So I was in baseball, I was in football, I was in basketball, I was in soccer. So it was always hard to get to some games just because same time that they were playing, you know, I was playing, too. But of course, you did have those days off where you were able to go to some games, had to wait, you know, for the Marlins too to come in in 92 when they finally said that they were coming and got to go see some of their games. But really, to tell you the truth, I mean, I didn't go to many just because I was in my own stuff and playing our own games and doing our own things. So going to the games was kind of like that happiness of just, oh, man, we get to go see these college guys play. So growing up, were you, since you're a Miami guy, like Dolphins, Canes, Marlins, Heat, like what were you passionate about? Definitely Marlins, definitely Dolphins. You know what? Canes is, it's funny. It was a school that I, like, of course, you looked at, you knew that they were there, they were always good, but I didn't follow it as much as I probably should have. I was more into, you know, Marlins and, and the professionals and you know, back, it, it was watching, you know, the Braves on TBS because that's the only games that we were able to watch until the Marlins came along. So I was a huge Braves fan until, you know, Marlins came into town. And then, of course, I was able to shift because I was able to go see those games. Let's say with UM, yeah, I watched the football. You know, I would watch a lot of football. But, I, you know, baseball, every, yeah, every so often we would go to the ballpark and, and watch some games. But I was more into football than I was into like the baseball aspect of it. I got you. So I'm trying to think if you grew up, you were born in 83, 
you're following football, eight, nine, you know, they're winning championships, right? 89, 91, they're playing for one in 93. So you got you got them at a pretty good time. Oh, yeah, no, got them at a really good time and always exciting to watch them play and seeing the guys that they had on the field. And of course, from Miami, if you're putting out a winning team, it's even that much better. 100%. And then when you got to UM, you got it right on the back end of that excellence, right? I, I did. Uh, when they had finished winning the year before when I came in. Um, we had really good teams, though. We went to Omaha, you know, the years that I was there. So we definitely were good. We just never won that championship. But I'm talking about football. Oh, and football. Yeah, no, well, both. Baseball and football was the same thing. They were they were there. They were, they what, they lost in the national championship game uh, against Ohio State on that botched call. Terrible call. Still hate that call. But no, I mean, there was, but it was the same thing. They were really good still. There were some really good football players on that team and some good guys too, especially being athletes, being able to, you know, just talk with them. You're in class with them, messing around, you know, hanging out. So who were guys, who were guys you would hang out with? Eric Winston was definitely a guy that I would always hang out with. And he was a big boy. I mean, I thought that I was strong and I was, I mean, I was strong, but boy, there's no, there's no comparing. That man was a man among boys. It was impressive how strong he was. Who else? Who else did you hang out with? Sonoris Moss was a guy that I would hang out with too. Winston was there. You know, Brock Berlin hung out with him sometimes too. So there was like guys that we hung out with, but it wasn't on a day, you know, like you, I would say hanging out where, you know, just going to an apartment and hanging out probably Winston was the biggest one. But a mutual respect, right? You guys all know each other. Oh, absolutely. Everybody knew each other. Everybody knew what they were doing. And you knew who the good guys were. You know, like you knew who was going to probably make it, who was going to be the, you know, the NFL, you know, pro guys. Did you ever cross paths? I mean, you must have, you were on campus with them at the same time. The legend that is Sean Taylor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had classes with Sean Taylor as well. Cool. Great dude, too. You know, on the football field, he would get after it. But off the football field, he was a cool man. Like, you were able to talk to him. You know, he, would, he would talk to you about baseball, too. You talked about football. He was, he was a really, really unique, awesome dude. So you mentioned before you were playing a lot. So in terms of getting to games, it was a little more limited because you were always busy. You played everything, baseball, soccer, basketball, football. You played it all. Played it all. And that's one of the things that I always try to tell parents, you know, especially when I'm talking to them. But listen, don't limit your kid just to one sport because all the other sports help you with whatever sport that you are going to end up wanting to play, especially as a kid. But you don't know if you're going to want to play that sport unless you try every other one out. So I was really good, actually, in soccer. I was probably better in soccer than I was in baseball. But the, the passion wasn't there. I, You know, baseball was always that sport where when I was playing the other sports, I was like, man, I can't wait till baseball comes around. And then when I was playing baseball, I was like, all right, I don't want this to end. I want this to keep going. But my dad did a really good job of being like, no, you know, you have to be able to miss the sport. So, you know, if you really want to play that. And then when I got to about 13, I would say, then he was like, okay, now you got to pick a sport, which is the one that you want to pick to be able to play. And of course it was a no brainer. I was playing baseball. So your parents came over from Cuba, correct? They did. What stories did you hear from your parents? How does that shape you, them raising you, you growing up, you know, being in this country? My parents came at a younger age. I think my dad was, you know, eight or nine when he came over. And it's kind of like the story of when Fidel Castro was basically coming into power, where they're like, all right, we got to we got to get out. We got to go. And they basically said, hey, we're going to go visit, you know, some family members in Miami and and we're going to make it our way up to uh to Orlando, we're going to go to Disney World and we're going to do all of that. And 
they never went to Disney World. You know, basically just come in and staying in a, I guess it was two families of, I would say, 10 or 12 in a two-bedroom place. So it was kind of, that was the lifestyle. And then just, you know, the grand, my grandparents coming in and, and needing to get a job to be able to try to move into their own place and, and doing that. And that was on my dad's side. And then my mom's side, she actually went to Spain for a year before coming over here. And her dad, my grandfather on her side, was very successful in Cuba, had, had good money, had good job, had, you know, everything going, but it was the same kind of situation. Hey, we got to just get up and go because this is not going to be good. I went over to Spain and basically had to leave everything behind. So, you know, she would tell us like, yeah, I, I had all these clothes when I was in Cuba. And then when I left is basically just have, you know, one dress and one doll. And of course it was a heartbreak of leaving everybody behind and, and having to start a new life and made her way uh, down to Miami. Yonder Alonzo was on this podcast and he, he talked about his story. His story was a little bit different because he came, he came with his parents. But did you guys ever talk about that? Not really. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, it doesn't really just come up in conversation. Um, we did talk a lot, of course, but never really, you know, about that whole entire Cuba stuff of him coming over and, and what he did. I mean, I, I knew him back when he was uh, in Coral Gables, you know, when he was playing in high school and stuff like that. So I, I definitely knew of him then. And his story is pretty cool coming over and, and what he did and how he turned everything around. You know, he was always, he was that chunkier kid, you know, and and he worked really hard to get himself into shape and excel as a baseball player. He was a good one. Your dad was into sports, right? He was into your, he was into your, I guess, into your playing, right? Like he's always supported. He was always there. And then he also, his, his professional career, if I got this right, was partially based in sports, right? He owned batting cages at Tamiami. I think he owned some sporting goods stores. So did that always weave your way into your guys' relationship? Yeah, I mean, he played he played at Miami-Dade, and he actually was able to get a scholarship to FSU. He didn't take it. He was going to actually go to FSU. He got a scholarship for him and my mom, because at that time, they got married at, uh, I believe it was 21, when they got married, and they were going to be able to go, and the dad basically said, his dad said no, because baseball at that time, you're not making any money in baseball, and it was more of a passion than it was to be able to provide for your family. And he was married at that point, and the dad, his dad was like, no, you've got a job over here. Um, he was always really good in business. And that my dad, that's one of his big things where he was able to look at a business and grow it and do well with it. So the dad was like, no, you got a good job. You're not going to play anymore. Stop this whole baseball stuff and get into, you know, your work. And you have a wife now. You got a supporter. And that's what the mindset and, and thoughts were back in those times. Of course, now it's different. You can make a ton of money in baseball. So it would be a lot more of, okay, yeah, just keep going, keep it going, see if you can make it up to the big leagues, of course. But what's funny is scouts that scouted him were scouting me, you know, years later. So being able to talk to them and them telling me like, no, dude, your dad was good, man. Like your dad was one of the top catchers, catch and throw guy, had power. So hearing it from them was funny. Of course, they were younger when you know, young scouts when he was there, but still being able to hear from them being like, oh, I guess he was pretty good then. Um, but yeah, he stayed in uh, sports. He still played softball back in those times. Softball was real big, especially uh, fast pitch softball. He played those. So I would go when I was four years old with him and play catch with him before games and he's playing softball. And yes, he did. He had sporting goods shops, uh, pro sports that he had opened up, you know, all of Miami. Of course, Sports Authority came along and there went that. And then he did open up the batting cage and sluggers, which he still has now. So he still they still have the batting cage. That, I think, is where 
really started to excel myself in baseball, uh, going to, to the batting cage and basically living there until it closed every single day and, and hitting and repetition and hitting and hitting and hitting. And that is one of the biggest things I think that made me get better and better in my growth in baseball. The batting cage at Tamiami for you. So he was like, was he like on site all the time and you were just there with him? And then because of that, you were in the cage or he was there and you wanted to be there and you just happened to be able to take advantage of the fact that that was your dad's business and you had free access. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's the latter of, of what you just said. It was definitely, I mean, he didn't have to be there every single day. There was times that he did, but remember, he's the, he was the owner. He could leave at whatever time he wanted to, but it was just me wanting to be there, me wanting to continue hitting, me wanting to get better. And at that point, I didn't even think about it as getting better. It was just, I loved being in the cage and hitting, you know? And, and you don't realize that you are getting better and stronger because you're swinging a bat. And at that time, you know, I would be able to have a wooden bat that I would get in there and swing. And, uh, you know, your forearms are getting stronger without you realizing your lower half from swinging is getting stronger without. So there was, it was funny just because I would, I would be doing things and I didn't realize at the time you know, that it was helping. I just love doing it. I would imagine did it carry, it had to carry over to the game, right? You, when you start with your playing, were you starting to move past other kids? I, I did. I mean, once when I was 13, I, I wasn't the tallest and I wasn't the smallest, you know, I was right there in the middle of the pack and I was one of the better players on the team. I'm not going to say that I was the best because at that time too, you know, you're 13, 14, there's some guys who are big boys already, you know, six foot at 13 and they're hitting the ball a lot harder than you. You know, their bodies are different than yours are. But I was always able to make hard contact. I was always able to hit balls in the gap. Power numbers really didn't happen until later on, once I started to really fill out and, and become 6'2". Back in those times, I was a lot shorter. And then I just started to grow a little bit more and more and more, and I kept growing. But yeah, no, the, the hard work definitely paid off just because the swing got better the hand-eye coordination got better, and I was doing it on a daily basis. So I was seeing a whole bunch of pitchers coming in that it, it was tough to, you know, strike me out, and I was always, you know, ready to hit. Who taught you? So who was, was it your dad working with you or you had somebody else? So my dad did work with me, but we had a guy, Manny Crespo. His son, you know, played at the U also. Uh, Manny Crespo was my hitting coach until, boy, until probably 16 years old. And then he went to, you know, continue coaching in the minor leagues and stuff like that. So then I had to get somebody else. But he was probably the biggest one of being my hitting coach when I was playing. So uh, apparently this, and I don't know if, if some of this is bigger than it actually is, but guys have come through your batting cages at Tamiami, like names have come through your batting cage, or at least have hit there. Yes. Or is that, is that a little more like a guy showed up, hit a couple swings and now Ryan Braun hits at Tamiami, the, the, the batting cages. I mean, we had guys, like, especially when I was playing, uh, I would have guys come down like Stanton. I would have Stanton come down and we would mess around and hit in the cage you know, when he needed to get some stuff in. And it was a good place to hit just because we were able to get there, open up our, ourselves. We didn't have to worry about, you know, anybody bothering us. We can just get our work in and done. So that was always nice to have. Ron would do the same thing. We would go in and hit and stuff like that. But I would say big guys coming in. A-Rod hit there? No, A-Rod had his own, he, he had his own uh, batting cage. I don't he might have. I don't even know if he would have hit there now because they didn't, that didn't open up until after. Because he graduated, I believe, in, in 93 is when he graduated. So that cage wouldn't have been there. And if it did, my dad didn't own it at that time. So 
he wasn't there. I mean, yeah, the older guys like the Raul Ibanez and stuff like that. Like Raul Ibanez actually worked for my dad in the sporting goods uh, shop when he went to Sunset. And he would go and work at my dad's sporting goods shop. Where was the shop? He had a couple different ones. He had one. Uh, the the one that I remember the most is in Miller Square Mall, right off of 56 and one, what is it, 137, right around there. Uh, it was Miller Square Mall in the back. It was next to a Hallmark. He also had one on Coral Way, close to where the library is on Coral Way. He had those two that I remember at that point. I believe he had like six or seven while I was growing up. But of course, they you know closed down. And the one that stayed open the longest was that Miller Square one. Would little Gabby get to go in there and just like have shopping sprees? I would go in there and we would, you know, especially when things were slow, we would get a football and play indoor football around the, uh, around all the clothing and shoes and stuff where he probably didn't know about. And we would just mess around the whole entire time and get there. But, you know, in those times, I lived probably a mile and a half from the sporting goods shop. I lived right in front of uh, McMillan Middle School that's over there. And I would be able to just walk. You know, I'll just call my dad on the on the phone and say, it wasn't a cell phone. You had to actually, you know, have a real phone and from the house with the cord and everything. And I would call, hey, I'm going to go to the shop. He would say, all right, call me when you get there. And I would walk myself over to the shop and just hang out and have fun and sell some stuff. Nice. So about the baseball gear, you, you, you could custom order some stuff. He, he made sure you had the right stuff. He made sure that I had the right gear. He made sure that I was well equipped to be able to, to play. But you had to, I had to earn it, too. So it was one of those things where you, you have to earn it. You can't just go in there and get it. I had to get good grades. I had to make sure that, you know, I stayed on top of my grades, being on the honor roll. Okay, you're on the honor roll. Perfect. You're able to go, you know, over there and get yourself a nice bat or you're able to go over there and get yourself cleats or whatever it was. So I definitely had to earn it, but it was definitely provided for. So you said that um, about 13 or 14 is when you really started to focus on baseball. And that's just because it's the sport you loved and you were good. I I was good. I was good. I was an all-star, you know, growing up every single team that I was on. So I was good. I was definitely good in baseball. Some say that I was probably better in soccer, just the way that I played. But I, I didn't like it. You know, for me, I was not, I was like, I don't want to just run for 90 minutes. You know, like this ain't fun. <laughs> I like baseball. I like the intricacies of, of the game. I love to learn about the game. And that was, I think, the biggest thing is the ins and outs, the knowledge of baseball, the rules that the game has. Those were always fun for me to learn and read. Don't make the, you know, last or first out at third, you know, like those kind of things are things that I learned that, you know, I just loved about the game and the knowledge about, you know, what to do and when to take the extra base. And even at a young age, I I was learning those and I was, you know, paying attention to all of that and watching games. Miami, South Florida is known as a football town for the talent you know, the Hurricanes, the Dolphins, et cetera. I covered uh, high school sports down here for a few years, and I would say baseball is probably right behind it. It may not get the coverage in the press, but there are an enormous talent pool of baseball players down here. So who were some of the other guys, or were the, were the other name guys coming up at about the same time you were? Because I know there every year there's guys going getting drafted, skipping high school, going to college, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, we, I, I played on some really good summer ball teams. There was a guy, Alexi Hernandez, coming out. He was one of the bigger, you know, names coming out. He actually went to UM. Unfortunately, um, he got cut his first year. But prior to that, he was still one of the bigger names coming out of Miami. You know, guys who I played with that were a little bit before me, like David Espinosa, he was a first-round pick. Luis Montañez, he was a first-round pick. 
they, they were the guys who you looked at and when you were going to showcases and watching them, you're like, all right, if I can do something better than these guys, which you weren't. These guys, I, I was younger than them, but boy, it was impressive to watch them go out there and do what they did, which made me better. We, with David Espinosa, we, he would go to the cage with us and we would just hit for hours and play games and, you know, competition after competition. It was a lot of fun to, to be able to interact with guys, especially that you knew were going to be those first round picks. You mentioned the word showcase. Can you maybe describe for people that don't know what it's like to be at a showcase? Because I feel like it's just massive amounts of young prospects essentially trying out, trying to make a name for themselves. And that's really what it is. Uh, you go over there, you run the 60, which is the 60-yard dash, and, and you get your time. And and for me, I was never one of the fastest ones. I mean, I, I wasn't slow by any means. You know, I ran a 6.970, you know, 60, which is better than a lot of people in the world running down that line. But when you're talking about, you know, for athletes, you know, you're one of the slower guys uh, on that field. So you do that 60-yard run, then you'd go out there. Infielders would take round balls, you know, usually at shortstop. You'd field that position, make your throws across, just to basically see your arm strength. How, how is that arm strength being able to throw across the infield, basically? Um, outfielders, you'd go out and, and you would take your throws. Usually you'd go to right field, and they would put you in right field, and you would make your throws to third, make your throws to home. And it was, again, just to see that arm strength and velocity coming off of your hand. And then the fun happened, which was BP. And you'd get out there and get into groups of BP, and you'd be able to showcase your power and see – you know, what kind of power you had to all fields. They, they didn't all, only want to see you hit balls out if you were a righty to left field. Okay, great. You could pull the ball for a home run. You know, what can you do to right center? Can you hit the ball out to right center? Do you have, you know, power to opposite fields? But really at the end, it was just a showcase to showcase your talents and, and what you had. And, and a lot of those are, are big because that's where, one, you kind of get your foot in the door. College coaches, they would go out to certain showcases to watch you play, to watch what you were doing. That's where they were, you know, looking at how you were performing. You know, what are your numbers looking like? Uh, how is the ball coming off your bat? All those kind of things they put in and they evaluate you as a player to see whether or not they want you. In terms of the showcase, is there a lot of pressure? Absolutely. And it's funny because... It shouldn't be. The better you play, the more relaxed you are, the more you're having fun. And then the, in the showcase, you're like, okay, I got to I gotta do better. I got to do this. You know, okay, this guy in front of me hit five home runs. I need to try to hit eight because I need to look better than him. And that's the thought mentality going in rather than it just being like, no, I'm going to go out there and I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to enjoy it. The more you have fun, the more enjoy, the quicker your bat is, the quicker you're getting through the zone. And I definitely saw the change from my first showcase, let's say, and then as I kept doing them, one, you start to get used to them a lot more. So you start to realize the whole entire of what's going on and, and you know who you are as a person as well. You know, the more you start doing, you're like, listen, I'm not going to run a 6.7 or I'm not going to run a 6.660. So I'm going to just run it the best that I can. Hopefully I'm a little bit better than my fastest time, but I'm not expecting this crazy number to pop out then, you know, with hitting, like, hey, I know what kind of power I have. I know where I'm at. So you start taking those easier swings, and the ball comes off the bat a lot better. So it, it was good because then by the time I became a senior, and you're going to do those same type of showcases, but for the major league guys, it was so much easier because you just already knew what you were expecting of yourself going into these showcases. And you were going to try to do more than that. It was, I know what I got. I know who I am. And this is what I'm going to do. 
Now I'll ask you, as Gabby Sanchez, former major leaguer, broadcaster, are you a fan of how the sort of youth baseball has evolved, right? Showcases, travels, the amount of play. It might be the only approach. You may, you may never take it back, but is it too much? At a certain level, yes, I believe so. I miss those optimist days, you know, where, where they had all the different sports that you would play. And it was, you know, hey, this season is baseball. This season's soccer. This season's basketball. This season's football. And you just played every single one. I, I miss those, especially for kids. I feel like so many young kids are starting to play baseball at, at a year-round level now that it's kind of burning them out by the time that they're 13, 14 years old where they're just like, I don't want to play baseball anymore. I've been playing baseball since I was six years old, all year round. Like, didn't have a life as a, as a kid to be able to do other things. And that's what I kind of have to stress to parents. Like, listen, you don't have to play year-round baseball to be the best. Don't worry about if your kid is, you know, not the best guy on the team right now at six or seven or eight. You know, let him experience being a kid and being a child and going out there and playing the different sports. Because every single sport is going to help benefit you in baseball. So let's say you have a kid that's just playing baseball year round. Yeah, that kid might is going to be better, right? He's, he's going to be able to, you know, hit the ball better. He's fielding the ball better because he's doing it on a daily basis, right? But now you get this kid who played soccer. Now in soccer, you're, you're building up your, your stamina. So you're, you're in better shape. But then your footwork is better because you're constantly, you know, handling the ball with your foot. So my footwork was better when I got into baseball than, let's say, a guy who just played baseball only. Playing basketball, peripheral vision, you know, being able to know where guys were without having to stare at them. You know, all of those things helped out because in baseball, I'd be able to just catch the ball and throw without kind of even looking, knowing that I already see where second base is, where guys weren't able to do that. So I I tried to tell parents, like, every sport has its advantage that's going to help in whatever sport he's playing next. And I don't want that to get lost. I want these kids to be able to have fun and enjoy a sport that they're playing and not be like a job at a young age to where when they turn 15, 16 years old, they're just over it. All right. So before we get into high school, I need to, I need, I need to ask you about this because this tidbit to me is interesting. You mentioned your middle school before you were in the band. I was, I played in the jazz and symphonic band. I was a, uh, a saxophone player, an alto sax. That's cool. You know, what's funny is um, my eighth grade year, we had jazz and symphonic band. But if you did both, you didn't have PE. So I looked at it as that's fine. I'll give up PE because I'm going to jazz and symphonic band. And we take so many trips that I'm just going over here to play at the nursing home for the old people. And I'm able to, you know, one, you're getting out of school and you're playing you know, saxophone and having a good time. So it was always, it was a lot of fun. And I still have it. My daughters, uh, one of my daughters, you know, loved music. She plays the guitar. She plays the clarinet. So I always say like, yeah, you got that one for me. Cause I still have that love for, for music. It was a class you had to take and then you fell in love or you chose to take it and fell in love. So going in, I think you had to take band one of your, the, my first year. So my sixth grade year, I was, I was having to take band, but then it was just like an elective where if you wanted to take it again, you could. And I just liked it a lot. So I just, every single year I kept it um, and I got pretty decent at it. And I just, I was like, yeah, I want to keep playing in the band. And I did. I just kept playing in the band. And instead of PE, I would do double band and have a good time. And did this continue in high school? 
no, my high school did not have any band. I, I went to a small little high school, Burrito Miami Private, and there was no band. There was no football. There was a little bit of soccer. They had a basketball team that the baseball team would play against and destroy them. You know, like it was just more of a baseball school than anything else. Do you play casually? Like you just kind of pick it up and play? You know, what's funny is when my daughter plays the clarinet, it's very similar to the saxophone. So whenever she was playing, I would bring it out and play a little bit with her and have some fun jam sessions. Can you hold your own? I mean, I can hold my own playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star now. You know, <laughs> I haven't played it in such a long time. You know, I'll be able to play, you know, in the mood that I used to play. Like I can have some of it that I still remember. You're never really going to totally forget. But yeah, it's one of those things where in time I probably will get back and, you know, get some more lessons and and, and get back into it. Music, I feel like music always infiltrates professional and collegiate and professional sports, right? Like now it's walk-up songs and headphones walking in and whatever, but what would you listen to? I would listen to everything, to tell you the truth. You know, it's funny though, I, I really, I listen to more country than I did anything else. That seems like an oddity, right? For a Cuban-born, Miami-raised guy to be a country music fan. Right, for a Cuban-born, you know, and I did. I listened to my Juan Luis Guerras and my Willie Chirinos and stuff like that, but it was that calmness, you know, like I, I wanted to just relax. So even like now, I'll listen to a lot of reggae music, sitting by the pool, you know, put some reggae music on just to chill and relax, get that vibe. I was never into you know, just putting on rap. Like a lot of guys now, they'll listen to just rap and, and it pumps them up and they get hyped up. And I was always on the other side, like, no, I want to relax. I want to be like free, easy, chill. So my music was more on that chill side than it was on like the get hyped and pumped side. All right. So you mentioned the small little high school you went to, Brito Miami Private. For people that are from South Florida, they might know. For those that aren't, you grew up in West Kendall, right? And Brito Miami Private is over kind of like on the west side of US 1 opposite the Grove, right? It's far. Yeah, it's it's far. It was it was a good it was a good 45 to an hour drive to get to school. So why'd you end up there? You know, it's funny. I was going to go to Westminster Christian. That's the baseball factory. And that was the baseball factory. Rich Hoffman was there. I went to a lot of camps. And he wanted me at the school and I was going there. One of the times that I was hitting with Manny Crespo, he was talking to my dad and he was like, okay, he's going into eighth grade, right? Because of my age. So I was born September 2nd. The cutoff date for school was September 1st. And when I was very young, the preschool teacher was like, no, he has to go into school early. So I was always the youngest. I was the youngest guy in the grade in my class by a lot. Like there was nobody even close to me where other guys were getting the armpit hairs, like I had none. I think that helped me out because I was always playing against older kids constantly. So I would always have to battle and fight for everything and it made me better. But he's looking at it as, hey, your son is a good little ball player. He can't be getting signed as a 17 year old or going to college as a 17 year old. He has to go to college as an 18 year old. Like you're you're doing a misfortune to him. So they said, okay, you know, what, what can we do? Well. You got to put him back in eighth grade again. He has to do eighth grade again. You know, it's, it's going to help him mentally, maturity wise. You guys messed him up early by putting him in school early. Now you're going to have to, you know, switch that. So, of course, my dad said, what do you think? And I said, listen, I'll do whatever you guys tell me to do. If you guys tell me that I should stay back, I'll stay back. So they said, OK, let's put you back into eighth grade again. We went to Rich Hoffman. I already had gotten into Westminster Christian as a ninth grader. And Rich Hoffman said, absolutely. I'll, I'll having him for another year. Yeah, let's put him back. He needs to be actually 
he should be in eighth grade, not going into ninth. So they went to the school and said, we want to get him into eighth grade, not ninth. And the school said, no, his grades are too good. We can't put him back into eighth grade because he's met all the requirements and there's no way that we can do that. So my dad said, well, I have another you know, person that I know that they'd already said that they would do it. And it was Brito Miami Private. And at that point, we had no, I had no clue. So I had no clue about Brito Miami Private. I didn't know, you know what it was. I just thought I was just going to go there, do eighth grade, and then you know, come back to Westminster the next year. And Rich Hoffman told my dad when he said, oh, Brito Miami Private, he said, are you serious? And my dad looked at him like, what do you mean am I serious? Like, yeah, it's the only school that, you know, that I know the, like, I know the principal and we can get them in. He said, you know that that's our biggest competition. That's our biggest rival. And my dad was like, I, I didn't know that. I didn't think that you guys had any rivals like that. And he said, yeah, oh yeah, that's my biggest. But he said, you know what? No, go over there because at least I know that he'll be playing good baseball. If it comes to it, then he'll be able to come over after. And I had no clue going in. So I get there as an eighth grader and coach Ralph Suarez is the coach. You know, he's a six foot two strong guy, workhorse, you know, and kind of mean at that point, you know, like I didn't, I was like, whoa, what's going on here? I didn't know coaches were allowed to smack you in the chest when you weren't doing stuff, you know, and that was the mentality. It was just going after, but nobody worked harder than this man. I'm talking about, he would throw BP for three hours to every single person without stopping. He would hit ground balls for three hours without stopping. And that was his worth ethic. He just went after it and he did everything for the players that were there. And as soon as I finished my first year, I told my dad, I'm like, I'm not leaving. I know a coach has this kind of work ethic. It's just going to make me better as not only a, a, as a player, but as a man, because I'm seeing the way that he's approaching teaching us so i have to up my game so that i am doing that myself as a player so what kind of team do you guys have always good players on that team i remember um, my eighth grade year we had a guy wally rosa he was the catcher he was definitely a guy i looked up to by the way that not only he was being he was a team captain but the way that he went about his business he was always you know the guy up in front when he when we were running and he was a catcher but nobody was able to outwork him. And for me, looking at the way that he did what he did, I was like, yeah, when I'm a senior, that's kind of what I want to do. I want to be the guy that nobody is able to outwork. The guy who's always in the front of the line when it comes to running. The guy who everybody looks up to. And that was my thought process always going in. And, and he definitely showed me the way when it came to that. I never even told him that. He has no clue. But it was one of those things where you just looked up to a guy and you're like, all right, I see what he does and I like it and I want to continue that. And that's what I did. And then I mean, once I was able to get a car, my sophomore year, I was able to get a car. My parents, you know, they were like, all right, listen, you one, it's 45 to an hour to get you to school. Like you need to start learning to drive your, yourself to school. But I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning and we had a, a gym that we were able to go and use for free. And the gym was all the way in Biscayne is where it was, in one of those high rises. And I mean, that's that's a like far away from where I live. That's even further north than where you were going. Right. That's even farther out there. You know, that, that would take me, I would leave at five in the morning. So I'd get there in an hour just because there was no traffic whatsoever. But I would get there, you know, I'd wake up at five. I'd get there around 545, six o'clock. And I would work out from six to eight, get myself, you know, ready for school, go into school. 
do my schoolwork, do our practice, and then I would leave practice. And usually practice would be over around 5.30, you know, 6 o'clock around that time. And I would head straight to Sluggers where I would, every day I would do something different. Uh, if Sluggers batting cage in the front, there was a big grass area, over 100 yards for sure. And, you know, one day I would get the parachute on and I would do, you know, 20 sprints with the parachute on. And this was after practice, after working out, after doing all of that. But it was just that thought process of somebody is always going to be working harder than you. So you need to push to work harder than them. And I knew that at that point, the only way that I'm going to be able to be successful and maybe even get my dream, which was to play in the major leagues, was that I had to work and there was nothing else to it. I had to get out there and I had to give it 100% with whatever I was doing. So I would do extra running then I would go to the cage and I would hit in the cage and then I would go and I would get extra ground balls and I would get home and it would probably be around, you know, 9.30. I would eat my dinner, I would go to sleep and wake up at five in the morning and do the same thing again the next day. And I did that constantly from sophomore year all the way to senior year. And being at that school, was there any concern? I mean, I know your baseball is a little different because the school doesn't, ma- I mean, matters, but with the showcases and all that kind of stuff, in terms of your opportunity to either play college or play professionally, being at a small school like that, did that matter? At the time, I didn't realize it, you know, because at the time, we were that, that school, we were playing against everybody. We were playing against the best competition, but you were still a 1A school. You were still a small school. And it wasn't Westminster Christian where they had those Alex Rodriguez guys who went there. You know, the notoriety of the school wasn't really there. Now in the baseball world, it was, and people kind of knew, but still the whole entire stigma was, yeah, but they're 1A. They're only playing against 1A schools, which wasn't true. We were playing against everybody, but it, it was still there as that. And I remember going into my junior year, there was a team called the Florida Bombers, and it was the best summer team that you could play on. That's the team that you wanted to be on. But I never got anything there just because I went to Brito and the coach was kind of like, I'm not going to get a kid from this, you know, 1A school to come play. And I had friends that were on that team, guys who I played summer ball with the years prior. And they were telling the coach, like, dude, no, trust me, like, he is good. Like, let him come play, promise. And all of a sudden, one kid gets hurt. And he said, you know what, fine. Let him come to try out and see what he does. So I got there in the first game that I got there to play, uh, sitting on the bench, which I wasn't used to ever sitting on the bench. I was always one of the guys starting, but you got to start somewhere, right? So I started on the bench and probably fifth or sixth inning, it was like, all right, come get a pinch hit. So I get in there to get a pinch hit. I hit a double off the fence. So he's like, all right, so he can swing it. So the next day, same kind of situation, fifth inning, get yourself a pinch hit. And I hit a home run. So now the coach is like, all right, well, he's two for two on pinch hits. He hits a double, he hits a home run. The next day, he's, he's like, all right, we're playing in a tournament. So the next game, he's like, all right, I'm going to put you as a DH and see how you do. Ended up going like three for four, hit another home run, another single to double. And at this point, he's like, all right, well, I need to find a place for this guy to play. And I was a shortstop in high school. And he said, well, I need a first baseman. Can you play first? I said, I'll play wherever you want me to play as I know that this is the team that I need to play on. And up to that point, I didn't have any offers or any schools. Like, I would get letters, but it was nothing crazy. It wasn't anything that was big. Playing on that team basically took it to the next level because all the coaches from college, they were looking at this team because there were a whole bunch of guys on this team 
that were big time prospects. So going and playing on this team, I was able to finally get noticed and looked at. And usually your junior year is when you sign your letter of commitment to a school. Now, once I started playing on this team, that's when I started to get the look at from the bigger name colleges and universities. So then I started getting University of Florida, Clemson, Tennessee, all these big schools. Now, I did get the UM letters. Nothing really was going. Like I would start getting phone calls and I was getting phone calls from UF all the time. I was getting phone calls from Tennessee and from Clemson. UM, every, I think I got maybe one phone call. Like I wasn't really getting much. So I didn't even think about that. I was I was more thinking like, well, I guess I'm going to go play for the University of Florida. I think McMahon was his first year there at, at the University of Florida. And I was the first guy that they offered a scholarship to. And it was a full ride to go to UF. And I was like, all right, well, that's pretty cool. You know, being able to go to a good school, I'll be able to leave house. You know, I'm going to do a college life. And I was going to go take a visit to UF. So I, I'm going to take a visit to UF. It was a week away. I had everything set up. I was going to go to UF to take a visit. I had a visit set up for, I believe it was Clemson as well. Tennessee was trying, you know, wanted me to go take a visit to them as well. And all of a sudden, like, UM calls out of the blue. And it was Coach Morris. Like, hey, Gabby, we want you to come in to do an unofficial visit. Can you come, you know, today? And I'm in a week away from going to Florida where I'm not going to lie to you. I was going to commit to Florida. I was already like, I'm, I'm just, I'm not even going to mess around. So is this the summer? Is this the summer or the fall? This is the summer still. So now I'm playing. Emilio Fernandez was the, the, the coach for the Bombers. And the whole entire time that I'm playing, he is in shock because he's like, I didn't think that there was a player out of a small school like that that would be playing. I was leading the team in every offensive category at that point. And then he was telling me like, dude, you're getting all these offers now to go. He's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. I think I had told him like, I'm, I think I'm just going to, you know, go with Florida. They're the ones that have shown me the most interest. You know, they're the ones that have shown me everything. I'll probably just go there because UM didn't even show me any interest of what I thought, you know, like as a kid, I'm like, I'm not getting the phone calls like I'm getting from the other schools. You know, yeah, I might get a letter here and there, but nothing really crazy. Like, all right. And then Coach Morris calls and said, I want you to come in for an unofficial visit. Can you come in today? So I'm like, I don't know. I mean, Dad, can we go? He's like, yeah, let's go. So we go over there. We go to the field. We go upstairs to where the office is and where his office is. And we sit down and we start talking. Gino Damari's there. Coach Morris is there. And just talking hey, you know, we like what you've been doing. We see how you're doing. Great, this and that. I'm still thinking like, all right, whatever. You know, like I'm not even putting two and two together. And then here comes the offer. And I was like, wait, what? They're like, you're going to offer me something? Like, oh, that's crazy. Now, they had just finished winning the national title. So this was the number one team in college baseball. So you're going into the best college baseball team's office. And they knew that I was going to Florida the next week. And I feel like Emilio Fernandez, the head coach for the Bombers, called and probably told him, like, but by the way, he's going to Florida and it looks like he's going to sign if you guys don't. So they came in, they made me basically an offer that I could not refuse. And I was like, yeah, this is easy. <laughs> I get to stay home. My parents get to watch me play. And it's the best college baseball team in the country. I mean, easy choice. The hardest thing that I had to do was call the other coaches and tell them that I had just finished signing with UM. Wait, you signed on, you signed on the spot? I, I committed on the spot. So I didn't even get my whole entire getting to get that free dinner and doing all the stuff that you get on the recruiting trip. 
I didn't get any of that. You know, it was an unofficial visit. And right there on the spot, they're like, this is what we're offering you. And it was a good one. It was a good scholarship. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I can't turn this down. Best team in the country and getting a really, really good scholarship. Like, I'm in. Let's do this. So this kid from Brito, Miami Private, who trains in Tamiami, signs to the best team in the country. And then you start from day one? I started from day one. Started as a third baseman from, from day one. I was you know, hitting third. And I believe that at that point, I was the first freshman to come into UM with Coach Morris definitely there, starting and batting third for the team as a freshman. Had a really good fall. And Ryan Braun was there too. And then me and Ryan Braun were basically hitting three and four, and we were both freshmen at the same time. What kind of freak of nature is Braun? Oh, he was something special. Uh, fall and spring, he had good numbers. He, he did. He had good numbers but nothing like what he did during the season. Like you can tell that during that season, the confidence level came in and showed like who he was and it just never stopped. He just was crushing balls left and right. You guys are super tight, no? Oh yeah, yeah, we're still super tight. He's probably the closest friend that I definitely had at UM. I mean, we, you know, lived together our junior year. We were super tight every other year, you know, there. We kind of like, as soon as we came in together, wherever you found him, you were finding me. And wherever you found me, you were finding him. Uh, we hung out a lot. Um, and then still now, to I mean, to this day, we still text a couple times a week. We're, we're still going back and forth, seeing how everybody's doing, seeing how things are. He's real big into the stock market. So we'll chat about that all the time. Like, all right, where, where should we go now? What should we get into now? What, what are we doing? Are you guys crypto guys or not? He got me into crypto. He did. He was a huge crypto guy for a while. And he got me into crypto. He was, he's been trying to get me into crypto for a while. And I finally said, fine, I'm, I'm getting in. I'll, you know, I'm still not investing a lot. I'm going more into the stock market. But no, definitely, definitely crypto guys as well. I got you. So you're not surprised what he did in the majors? No, not even close. It was easy to know that he was going to excel, you know, getting drafted in the first round by the Milwaukee Brewers. And it was funny because we, I got drafted in the fourth and we, we had a bet where the first person to make it to the big leagues had to buy the other one a watch. And that was our thing. Like, all right, first person to make it. And he was the one that said it. And I was like, you understand that you're a first rounder, right? Like you're going to move up the line a lot quicker than I am. So yeah, I'll take your, your dummy bet because I'm going to end up with a free watch anyways. What'd you get? I have still haven't gotten it yet. And I still mess with them too. I'm like, dude, where's my watch at? And he's like, oh, I know, I know I need to get you. I'm like, no, get me my watch, man. What's, what are you doing? Come on now. <laughs> what was his best stock tip? Did he give you something where you crushed it? There was a couple. There was a couple that, you know, made some good ones. And what's funny is the ones that I've given him that he didn't pursue that I've hit grand slams with like Tesla. I told him to get into Tesla when Tesla was at, you know, $180. And I told him like, dude, get into Tesla. Trust me, this thing is going to explode. I did. I got into it. And boy, did it not just explode in a couple years and went up. And he's still mad to this day that he didn't listen to me about that. Cause I told him about that one. And you know, Apple, when Apple was at 90, I was like, dude, get in. And he already had Apple at some point. Why Tesla? Why, why was that? Why was that your pick? One Elon Musk, you know, like I, I kind of looked at it as a company of like Elon Musk and what he does and the brilliance of his mind. I was like, he's got something going here. He's got something special. And I was just in, I, was, I mean, I have a Tesla, I drive a Tesla. So it's not like it was something where I just willy nilly just did. I actually liked the car. I thought that the car is the nicest car that I've driven and I've had some nice cars, but it's the best car that I've 
been able to drive. I just love it. So just with that alone, and then you add in Solar City. If if he does the umbrella company with SpaceX, just it'll be it'll go nuts. But I just like the solar. I like the battery. I think that that's going to be the next step in how we live our lives, getting away from fossil fuel. Hi, Hurricane fans. Joe Zagacki here for UPS. Your customers want more from your business. You've got to make more happen, whether they're in Miami or on the other side of the world, globally or locally. UPS is building solutions to help businesses give their customers exactly what they want. More made easy. UPS, official logistics company of Miami Athletics. Are the first two years at UM, you guys make the College World Series, but you don't win. So what's that like being at that school of that caliber, knowing that's the goal, getting there, but coming up short? How do you guys handle that as players? Oh, man, that's tough. We had really good teams. We did. One of the biggest things that we probably were missing was that pitching staff. We had some good ones, but it was just tough because we would put up runs. We had we had hitters. We would put up runs. You ran into a team here and there where you just lost the game. And that's kind of what happened to us where, you know, we played against Texas. I believe that Texas even won the national title that year that we played against them. And it was just, we ran into a really good team who was really hot at that time, at that moment. And we just lost and we put up a good fight. I mean, there were good games. We just lost. And that's what seemed to happen when we went to Omaha. It was just, we couldn't put the best game together and we were just, we would end up coming short. It stinks as a player because you knew you had a great team. You knew that the team definitely had the capability of winning the national title. You just didn't. And doing it two years in a row, I was like, man, this is brutal. Like, we want to win this thing already. Like, we want to get it. We were just not able to do it. But very good team. A lot of guys on on that team made it to the big leagues. And there was a lot of big league players on that team. What is Omaha like just to experience being in that moment, the atmosphere, event, et cetera? It was nothing like you've ever played before in your life. Because as, as a college kid, like the fans that we would get during an FSU Miami game, that was the most, you know, and it was like 7,000 people and it was packed and loud. And even at that point, you're like, whoa, there's a ton of people here. Like, this is crazy. Over there, there's 40,000 people that are watching the game, you know, and the loud, it was like, you're playing in front of, you're in a major league stadium playing in front of all these fans. Like it was the coolest experience, loud, noisy fans doing the wave the whole entire time. Like there was no atmosphere better than going to Omaha and no fans better than going to Omaha. I imagine that the trip home was though. That's a bad trip home. Yeah. Whenever you lose, knowing that you have the capability of a team to be able to win. Yeah. I mean, those weren't the best ones, but at the end of the day, you still made it to Omaha. You're one of eight teams that made it all the way to the end who are still playing. And you can't knock that either. You know, you were one of the best eight teams in the country and then being able to win a regional and then going and winning a super regional and then getting to Omaha. That was special. And there was a lot of ups in that. So you mentioned Friday night, or you mentioned, not Friday, but you mentioned a weekend series, Florida State at home. Describe the electricity. Oh, boy. Whenever you would play against Florida State, especially Florida State at that time, too, I mean, they've always been good, just like UM has always been good. But the energy with the fans, because it was just that rivalry game. And and as 
as players, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I didn't feel that rivalry with those guys, but the fans, they do. You know, the fans, that's that rivalry game, FSU versus UM, and, and that battle of who's going to be the one coming up on top was always something that the fans just enjoyed, and they gave you energy. They really did. I mean, when we were down here, the fans coming in, being loud, screaming, it helps. It really does help. And the, and the players themselves, you would get that extra energy from the crowd that was going. And then when we would play at Florida State against them and their fans, and you had the animals of Section B yelling and screaming at you, like that was special. I remember we were playing against them one day and the animals of Section B, which is what they call themselves, started the chant, Gabby's a girl's name. And the whole entire stadium as I'm walking up is yelling, Gabby's a girl's name. And I was like, this is, I smiled because I was like, this is the funniest thing in the world to sit down in this moment and have all these fans in unison together screaming. It was hilarious. It, I mean, it was funny. And it was just, that's the type of atmosphere that you would have in playing against FSU. And it's different than an, maybe Florida, but it's different than anyone. Maybe, right? I mean, there, is there another school that comes close? No, no. Uh, with that rivalry with UM Florida State, no, there was no school that was anywhere even near that. I mean, we would get fans when we were playing against Florida, but nothing like FSU Miami games. Like, that was it. That was the game to go to. That's the one that you circled in the calendar. You know, even as players, we're like, all right, this game is coming up. Let's go, fellas. Like, let's get hyped up. Let's start getting after it. So Yonder mentioned the competition at baseball practice. And we do a lot of football players that come through here. They talk about Green Tree, right? It just, it makes the player, it makes the team. It almost makes the program, right? How hard everyone's working against each other. But at the end of the day, you're working for each other. Was it the same way for your teams? Because uh, Yonder said it was, it made the game so much easier because of the intensity of the practices that you guys had. Oh, man, the, the intensities in the practice were, were definitely intense i mean it was it was something special and they what they would do is that you would get a group of i believe it was four guys per team right and they would separate the teams into fours so you would have the guys out there and whoever scored the most runs meant the least pose that you would have to run after the practice and now we still did our conditioning this is just extra so if you won i believe you didn't run any if you came in second because I think there was four teams. So if you came in second, you would have to run, you know, four poles, eight poles, and 10 poles. I assume that's right field to left field, right? Right field to left field line. And you did not want to come in last. So there was that competition of like, you would get mad at guys. Like, dude, what are you doing? Like, let's go take the extra base. We, we got to score some runs here. We got to get going. These guys scored three or four. We got to, you know, and that kind of intensity in practice, one, it made you better as a team. Because one, you're pulling for the guys there, but you're also like, hey, we got man on second with no outs. You got to get him over to third so we can get him in and get that run. Don't try to just hit the two run home. You're going to strike out and, you know, we're not doing anything. So those are where the intricacies of like the game came to where it was, you had good pitching on the mound because we always did have, you know, good pitching and the pitchers were trying to strike you out because they didn't, you know, they, they didn't want you to score any runs. It was, hey. I want to strike you out. That way I have, you know, bragging rights when we're talking, you know, when we're eating lunch, be like, hey, I got you. I struck you out with that bitch. So there was always those kind of things. And as a hitter, 
they're like, yeah, I want those bragging rights too. I want to hit that double or that home run and, and be able to be like, yeah, I got the home run off of you, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So there was definitely, it was really one, we were a really good baseball team. So the players on the field were really good. So you had to excel and you had to do better, you know, every single game if you wanted to even win any of those competitions. Before we get into getting drafted, what is the legacy in your mind of, of Coach Morris? One of the best college baseball coaches ever. And that's the thing. Like, you know, people look at it as what he did as a coach with players getting to the big leagues. And he had a ton. He had a ton of players under him that made it to the big leagues. But for me, it was that he turned boys into men and sustainable to be able to, you know, continue life after baseball. Not everybody's going to get drafted. Not everybody's going to make it to the big leagues. It was those other guys that he was able to help out to further their careers, not in baseball, but in life and giving them life moments. And that is one of the things where I respected him so much as, as a coach because he wasn't one of those guys where if you went 0 for 4 in a game that he would give you the cold shoulder. You know, yeah, he would be upset with you during the game, but as soon as that game finished, he would pat you on the butt and say, hey, we got tomorrow, man. Let's go. Have a good night. You know, get some good dinner, relax and rest. And that was just the type of coach that he was. He was always having his players back. And I respected him so much for that. Without getting into the details of, of your junior year, you didn't play that year, correct? I didn't. You mentioned earlier you were a fourth round pick. So what did you do that year to keep yourself in the condition, shape? And I guess in the eyes of the scouts, a guy they still wanted to take from an ability standpoint in the fourth round. If you, I mean, you missed a year of ball, that's a lot. And it's your most important year. So how did you maintain? Yeah, I mean, I was still able to do stuff. I was still able to practice and to hit and to do all my things. And it was just basically continue to work out, continue to, you know, try to better myself. I was still able to go and, and do some showcases. And so I went to the Marlins were having a showcase in Jupiter, Florida, and I was able to go over there and hit BP for them. And at that time, I had had a really good showcase with them doing everything. They're like, all right, let's see if you could hit the ball to right field. And I was hitting home runs to right center. And let's see if you can pull the ball, hitting home runs to left. So I had a really good showcase with them to the point to where like, it looked like I'm a, I was even going to be like maybe even a second rounder. They had a lot of picks in that draft. So I was like, I should be fine. I mean, I ended up getting the call in the fourth round. And, and of course, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to sign. You don't want to stay another year because then you basically get nothing. When you, go, you come back for your senior year, you're going to get drafted if you're good enough, but it's not going to be much. So, uh, you know, you kind of have to take it. And that's what I did. What was getting that call like? It had to be everything, right? Yeah, it was cool just because it was like, all right, now I'm starting the next chapter of my life. You know, knowing that I was going to sign, I'm like, all right, now here we go. Next chapter. And I tell kids always now, like, unless you are that first rounder out of high school, go to college, get your education, get your knowledge, get your growth as a person. Because when you're in college, one, you're having the fun. You know, you are going to the parties. You are doing those kind of things. And I'm not saying that you're not. You are. You're going out. You're having your fun. You're experiencing life as a college student. But you're also playing. So you're also doing what you need to do baseball-wise. But it's not a job at this point. At this point, it's just your college, you're having fun, and you're playing. Once I got to pro ball after getting drafted, it was like, okay, this is my job. And I'm, I don't need to go out. I don't need to go to these parties. I don't need to do any of that because guess what? I already did it in college. 
And all these high school kids, they couldn't experience it. So all of a sudden now they turn 21 and they're wanting to go to parties and they want to go out because they never experienced that life where we did as a college player. And I feel like that is huge because you see a lot of these guys coming out as high school and they're just not ready. And they're not ready. And even when they turn 21, they're still not ready. Where when you come out of high school, you're prepared. You have that knowledge. You, you went to school. You have a three years at least of education under your belt where you just need one more year to finish. You're smarter and you know what you're doing. You know how to do laundry for yourself. You know how to cook for yourself. You know how to, you know, survive and get by. What were the minor leagues like? Well, living, you know, four guys in a two-bedroom apartment just because you got paid nothing in the minor leagues. So you're trying to make every dollar count, uh, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, living on a bus for hours on end each day. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds fun. So you get the call in 2008. You get called up to the bigs. That's got to be another special moment right now. Now it's official. Yeah, that, that year I was in double A. I actually won the double A player of the year for the Southern League. And I was having a great year. I was hitting the ball well. I mean, I, I did well throughout the whole entire minors. But that year was probably where everything came together as a player. The home runs were there, the doubles, the average, just complete baseball defensively, offensively was there. And we went to the championship game when we ended up losing. It was the best two out of three, and we lost. Oh, no, that's the five, I believe. That's the five. We won two, and we ended up losing, you know, two games, I think, in a row, both extra inning games. I mean, we had a really good team. We should have won. So it stunk because we just lost. But then all of a sudden we come in and it was like, yeah, we lost and everybody kind of head down. But then it was like, oh, by the way, Gabby's going up to the big leagues and Cameron Mabin, you're going up to the big leagues too. And it was just like, what is going on right now? Like we just lost. So you're, you're kind of like mad, but then you get the excitement and the guys too themselves, they're excited for you to get called up to the big league. So then you forget about the loss that you had. And now you're getting, you know, a beer shower because everybody is super excited that, you know, Hey, we may have lost, but there's some cooler news coming out. And you're where, in what city? I was in, we were playing against the Braves double a team. Couldn't even tell you where that is now. All right. So regardless, you're in a smaller city, right? And next day you're flown into Miami. Next day, here you go. You're going to Miami. They're at home and I'm flying down. And I mean, I live in Miami, so I was just, coming down to my own house. And what was funny is the only thing I can think of was like, what do I wear to the stadium? You know, like, I don't want to look like a fool and show up in a, in a suit. Do I wear a suit? Do I wear like, what is it that I'm supposed to wear going into a big league stadium? So what'd you end up wearing? So I didn't know what to do. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to wear some nice khakis and a nice long sleeve shirt. And I think that will, if, if you're not supposed to wear it, you won't look like too much of a fool. But if you, you know, if you're supposed to be dressed up more, you won't look too bad. At least you're in khakis and, and a nice shirt. And guys were wearing shorts and t-shirts and sandals. <laughs> you have a locker, your jersey's hanging, your name's on the back. I mean, it happened, right? Your dreams are fulfilled. So are you excited? Or are you nervous? Or are you uncomfortable? Right? You're the new guy, the young kid in a professional locker room who's fulfilling his dream. What emotion was overriding that moment? Every single emotion was the same. I mean, it was the excitement, the nervousness, the what do I do? You know, like, how am I supposed to act? Do I say anything? Do I talk? 
do I go into the weight room? Am I allowed to go into the cage to hit? Like, you don't know what the experience is like because you haven't been there. You don't know it. I know what it is in the minor leagues, and I know what I would do in the minor leagues, but am I allowed to do that in the big leagues too or or what? The first day I show up, I always got there early. Even my first day, I, I got there at uh, 1.30 before other guys were there. And I walk into the clubhouse and I see my name on the jersey and it's those, you know, the teal pinstripes, the ones that I would go to the games and see guys wearing, the ones where I was like, one day I would love to be in that uniform. And boom, there it is hanging. And I sit down at my locker and I'm looking at my jersey and Wes Helms walks up. He's walking by. He looks at me and it's only me and him there. And he says, well, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, how you doing? I'm, you know, I'm Gabby. He goes, I don't care. What are you doing? Why are you still dressed? Get those clothes off, get shorts and a shirt on and meet me in the weight room. And I was like, yes, sir. Like <laughs> he was, he's, he was the guy, you know, like Wes Helms was, I wouldn't say he was the leader of the clubhouse, but he was a guy that everybody respected. And, and he was the older veteran guy. And I was like, yep. And I take my stuff off. I put my shorts and my shirt on and I meet him in there. And he's like, all right, this is what we're doing. We're working out. And this is what you're going to do from here on out. You're going to come early. You're going to work out with me. We're going to go to the cage. We're going to hit. And we're going to do anything. And you're going to just follow me. I'm like, all right, well, this made it so much easier. And that's exactly what I did. I just followed him around. We would work out. We went to go hit. We did the hitting. We came in. And the only thing that I had to do was make sure that I had a cup of coffee for him by the second inning. I had to go out there in the first inning. But by the second inning, I had to come back and have a cup of black coffee for him waiting. Oh, my God. So I, I watched this video. You, you kind of narrated your first at bat, and you had a good analogy. You said your knees were shaking like it was an earthquake. <laughs> they were. And it was funny because on video, you don't see it. You know, on video, you just look normal. But inside, I felt, I was like, I can't believe that my knees are shaking this bad. I probably look like a fool up here hitting right now. And I was just like, just make contact, you know, just put the ball in play, whether it's a hit or not, just make contact and put the ball in play. Did you? I did. And I think I ended up like flying out to right field or something like that. And I was totally fine with it. I was the happiest ever about getting out just because I was like, I just made contact and that's it. The whole entire jitters and the craziness will go away. And now I can, you know, play regular baseball. That's 08, right? 09, you go back to the minors. 08, I got called up in September, and I got, since we went to the championship game, we got there, I think it was like September 15th, so we basically only got about 16, 17 games in the big leagues. Now, the 17 games that we got in the big leagues was more pay than I got in all my years in the minor leagues combined, so that was a cool thing, where all of a sudden, you looked at the pitch, and you're like, wow, this is really nice, like, I could, I could get with this right here, and then in 09, it was basically, oh, it's your job at first base. And I had a terrible spring training. I was trying to do too much, just like every young guy who goes into spring training where you have this, you know, the chance to win the spot. I tried doing too much, and I, I got away from my game. Um, I, there was a guy that I played with. His name was Michael Ryan. He played in the big leagues as well. And he was there with the team, and he, he went to AAA with me as well. And once we got to AAA, where I started to play and hit, after about a week, he's just talking to me. He's like, man you actually are good. And I was like, well, yeah, 
Like, why would you think not? He's like, well, what I saw in spring training, I thought, this is the dude who's supposed to win the first base job? He is terrible. I, he was like, dude, you did not, you are not like this. You're like, why didn't you do this in spring training? You would be in the big leagues right now. Like, what, what was going through your mind? And I was like, well, I just try to do too much and, and, you know, just talking with him. And he was a veteran guy. He had played in the big leagues. And he was one of these players that was, you know, up and down kind of guy. And he said, listen, next year, when you go into spring training, have fun. Enjoy it. Enjoy the experience of being in spring training. If you go 0 for 4, who cares? You're not going to be perfect. You're not going to go 4 for 4 every game. Have fun with it. I said, okay. And 09, you know, had a great year. I was up and down in the big leagues you know, constantly. And then in 2010, they're like, all right, you have your chance again to be the starter. And I had to go up against Logan Morrison, who was the new guy coming up. It was me versus him, basically, to see who was going to win that first base job. And Michael Ryan's words just kind of always were in my head of like, just have fun. Don't think about anything else. Like, what's the worst that can happen? The same thing that happened to you last year, you know, like where you couldn't get a hit to save your life. Like, whatever, who cares? And it was the best spring that I ever had. And for Logan Morrison, he was experienced when I experienced the year before, where he was trying to do too much. And I think that spring, I ended up in like 400 or something like that, had a heck of a spring, and I won the first base job in 2010. What's opening day like? It was different, you know, like it, it was you're going out there and you're getting called to the line and you're shaking hands. And it was that surreal moment just because you worked your whole entire life to become a starter in the big leagues and you finally have that moment and it all starts on one day and it starts doing opening day and you're out there and you're shaking hands and it was a really cool moment to be able to just be out there in that moment playing for my hometown team it's one of those things you just can never take away that memory 2010 gabby is your first full year in the majors was stanton a rookie that year Stanton came in, I believe, halfway during that year. And the first time you saw him, you thought what? The first, the first thing I saw, one, it was like, this is a big dude. You know, he was 6'6", looked like Adonis, you know, had the six-pack, just built something special. And he's a young kid at that time. And then you see him just hit the baseball, and you went, oh, there's something there, man. Like, you don't see balls getting launched off a baseball bat like Stanton was doing. And... I didn't care who you were, you you know, at that time, Albert Pujols was my guy that, you know, you kind of looked up at and I was like, he's got nothing on Stan, the way that it ball comes off his bat. And he was still raw. He was still young. There was still a lot of ways to be able to get him out. Guys were throwing sliders off the plate, but boy, if you missed and he caught you, boy, that ball was going a long way and it was coming off hard. It was really impressive just the way that he just went out there and was able to swing the bat. He would miss hit balls and it would go farther than, you know, most guys hitting it perfect. That's got to be humbling. <laughs> it, it was, yeah, I remember, what was it? City Field just opened up. Uh, that was the first year that they were there where they got away from Shea Stadium. And he hit a ball there that was the farthest ball that still to this day that I've ever seen hit in person. And it was like a triple decker. And this was during BP. And it was like on the triple deck, but left center. And this ball just, as soon as he hit it, everybody stopped and stared. When he hit where it was, it was almost like BP was over. The guys just walked off the field. Like, that's we're done. Like, this is just... This is insane where he just finished hitting this baseball. And it was just like, that was him, man. Like, like he would just put on a show. 
he would put on such a show that guys from the other team would come out to watch him hit BP. Like he would hit in the first group. Hey, when is Stan hitting the first group? They would come out, watch him hit BP, and then go back in as soon as he finished. Like that's the presence that he had when he was playing. Oh my goodness. All right. So I got to ask you about the all-star game, all these special moments, right? That one, that's in the top, however many, right? I mean, hometown all-star you're with the elite of the elite. Yeah, that was, I would say my greatest moment was the first time putting on the uniform and stepping out onto the field where, you know, I looked at guys playing when I was a little kid, but that all-star game, that definitely was up there in, in one of my greatest moments. Was there a cool moment inside the weekend, a handshake, a conversation, home run derby, somebody say, hey, Gabby, man, welcome. You're great. I've watched you something. Meeting my idol, Kyle Ripken, going down and all of a sudden, like I'm standing there and inside the dugout, I'm like, oh, dude, that's Kyle Ripken. Like, no way. And I was just nervous. I was like, I want to get a picture. I want to introduce myself, but I don't know what to do. And I'm like, I'm an all-star in the big leagues. And I'm like, I still don't even know how to talk to this man. That's my idol right there. And I remember like just going down and, and I'm like, uh, hi, hi, Mr. Ripken. Uh, you know, I just want to, you know, say hi. And, and he looks at me, he's like, hey, what's going on, Gabby? How you doing? And I'm like, oh, man, he knows my name. Like, no way. This is crazy. And I got a picture with him. And I ended up getting a jersey. Jeff Conine, good friends with Kyle Ripken. So uh, I'm good friends with Conine, too. And I'm like, hey, Niner, is there any way that I can get a jersey that you think you can get Kyle Ripken to sign? He's like, absolutely, dude. Just get the jersey from the clubby. So I went and got a jersey from the clubby. Kyle Ripken sent it over. And I got it back. And he signed it for me. And it was, uh, Gabby, I love the way that you compete. Signed it, Kyle Ripken. So I have that in a frame with the picture of me and him at the all-star game together. How cool is that? That's like my, the prize possession, you know, like I have a whole bunch of memorabilia, I have that signed by guys, but that's the one that I'm like, yeah, that's that prize possession. I mean, I have a Derek Jeter Jersey and I'm like, nah, the Cal Ripken one is that's the one, man. You better at least put Jeter number two you since you work for the team, right? <laughs> he is number two on the Jersey. So. All right, there you go. <laughs> You haven't told him that, have you? I would. He's got to understand. I mean, that's Cal Ripken. He's, he probably will say the same thing. He'll probably be like, yeah, that's my idol too. All right. Last thing, we'll bring it back to Miami. You talked about Coach Morris. You, you have to have a good feel for what Gino can do, will do, being the manager, being the coach, I should say, for your school, for this school, as we wrap it back around to the U. Yeah, uh, Gino was a hitting guy and the outfield coach when I was there at UM. And, you know, at the time, the way that he taught hitting, I was like, man, that's, that's dumb. What do you mean I, you don't want me to pull the ball? Why do you want me to go to right center? And as a kid, you didn't realize it, you know? But then once you start to play, you're like, I get it. You know, use the big part of the field. You're going to be a lot more successful in life and in baseball life. And it was one of the biggest things that he had preached. So with the guys who are there now, like that, you're getting an experienced coach, a, a guy that knows what he's, he, he does know what he's talking about. And he's intense. Yes, he he's very intense and he wants to win. There's probably nobody on that field that wants to win more than he does. And you see it, that, that passion that he has for the game and for the time that he puts into baseball like he wants to win he wants to win that national title and he's going to do everything in his power to get to that point to be able to get that team to win and that's what you're getting from coach Damari. all right gabby appreciate it you're well versed in media since you do your work for the marlins so this went longer than i usually expect but i'm putting that on you bro because you're a good talker oh that, that that is on me that's my bad 
No, no, I'm fine with it. I always feel bad with my guests because I'm always like, yeah, an hour or so. And then I'm looking at the clock going, oh, Josh, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. But I can't wrap it up because there's so much to talk about. No, we have a lot to talk about and it was a good conversation, man. Thank you so much, Josh.